Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, don't talk to strangers. It's advice we're all given at a very young age, and it tends to stick with us well beyond that. But what if there is a big benefit in connecting with people we don't know? Author Joe Cohane delved into that topic in a book called The Power of Strangers, and he joins me so you'll get to know him tonight. Police chiefs and others from across North America are gathered in Edmonton this week to discuss a pressing issue, the safety of our cities. It's called the Safety of Our Cities Conference. Violent crime rates are up in many Canadian cities, some significantly. So what do solutions look like? Winnipeg's Chief of Police, the President of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, is with us to talk about what they're discussing. But first, the fallout continued today after yesterday's bombshell announcement from Prime Minister Trudeau that there is credible information suggesting India had a role in the death of a Canadian citizen, BC Sikh leader and separatist Hardeep Singh Nijjar, who was shot and killed in June outside a Sikh temple in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey. We find out more about the international reaction to this. Are Canada's allies standing behind Canada on this one? And former BC Premier and Federal Cabinet Minister Ujjal Dessange joins me to talk about what impact this could have long-term on the Canada-India relationship. First up tonight, let's head back to Ottawa and a story that continues to reverberate right around the world tonight. The fallout continued today after that bombshell announcement by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons yesterday that there is credible information from intelligence sources suggesting India had a role in the death of a Canadian citizen, the murder of a Canadian citizen. BC Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar was shot and killed in June outside a temple in the suburb of Surrey. The 45-year-old was a leading supporter of a Sikh homeland in the form of an independent Khalistani state and was designated by India as a terrorist in July of 2020. After yesterday's announcement, Ottawa ordered a senior diplomat to leave Canada. India then woke up on Tuesday morning, this morning, vehemently denying the accusations, calling the claims absurd. They responded by booting a Canadian diplomat, saying the decision reflects the government of India's growing concern at the interference of Canadian diplomats in our internal affairs. On his way into cabinet this morning, the Prime Minister told reporters that India needs to treat this with the utmost seriousness. We are not uh, looking to provoke or escalate. We are simply laying out the facts as uh, we understand them and uh, we want to work with the government of India uh, to lay everything clear and to ensure uh, that there is proper process. Well, after briefly standing by the government side yesterday, in words at least, the Conservative leader Pierre Polyev changed his tune today, calling on the Prime Minister to come clean. I think we need to see more facts. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement, um, and I will just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public, so we want to see more information. Well, how much more information can be put out there publicly, safely, is another question. BC's Attorney General Nikki Sharma says the province will be taking every step it can to protect people in the community from violence if they are under threat. Here's what she had to say. My thoughts and... and you know, all of us, all of our thoughts go out to the Niger family um, from this news. I think the community is reeling. Um, it's shocking and distressing. Um, every British Columbian has the freedom to express their political views, to express their values without the, heart, the threat of violence or harm. And um, what, the, what Prime Minister Trudeau uh, revealed yesterday was troubling. 
The big question here is not necessarily who it was that was murdered. I don't mean to put it that way, but the issue is, was a Canadian citizen murdered on Canadian soil by or within the, with the knowledge or active participation of a foreign state, in this case, India. I mean, no nations, China's never done that here as far as we know. This is a big deal. And, and she, and you know, those looking for more information are right here. We might need to know more because certainly India has denied this vehemently. But does the Prime Minister get up in the House of Commons and announce this without proper information? Joining me now to talk about this is another, for, is a former BC Attorney General and a former BC Premier, a Liberal Cabinet Minister under Paul Martin. Ujol Desange is author of a new book called A Past is Never Dead. He knows this issue very well. He was, in fact, attacked back in the 80s because he spoke out against Sikh extremists. And Ujol Desange joins me now. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. This is a, a story that you know all too well. Uh, what was your reaction to the Prime Minister standing up yesterday and making this announcement? Well, it was quite serious. Um, I took it um, at face value. Prime ministers don't usually uh, do these kinds of things lightly. Um, you know, I, I would have liked to have more evidence at my disposal to make a judgment. For instance, I was just listening to the interview of a former head of the intelligence agency of India mm -hmm. uh, who retired several years ago. And uh, he was adamant in an interview he gave to some Indian journalists that Indian agencies have never done that, never gone into other countries to kill people. So, you know, I take our prime minister at his word. Um, he has the evidence. My concern is that perhaps he should have waited a little more. Maybe, um, you know, if they know India prompted this and Indian agents did this, then either the Indian agents flew in and have flown out who did this, or, you know, they know who it is and why are there no charges? I mean, those are the kinds of questions people are asking. Because this is for uh, a fast emerging India. Uh, we saw the lunar landing a while back. Uh, it has been a success. It was a successful G20, except perhaps for our prime minister. This is a time that India very much feels like it's in the spotlight. And this sort of attention, I mean, this really does cross many diplomatic law, many international law lines, if this, in absolutely. fact, were to be the case. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this this is up there inter with international banditry. It's absolutely not acceptable if India did this. And the prime minister is right in calling India out. Are there any better ways of dealing with this? Perhaps there may have been. But the relationship between India and uh, Canada was already tense has been for some time, and mainly because of the Khalistan issue. Mm -hmm. Because India sees Mr. Trudeau and most Canadian politicians as a mum on the Khalistani issue. They, they, you know, some of their best supporters are Khalistanis. Mm -hmm. And uh, so India doesn't trust Canadian politicians. And Canadian politicians, for legitimate reasons, uh, don't trust Mr. Modi. Because Mr. Modi, unlike any other prime minister in India, is more of a divider than a uniter of the country. And, uh, you know, he doesn't denounce lynchings of Muslims or, or untouchables. He doesn't denounce the um, violence on Christians on the, in the Northeast. And, in fact, he has weaponized the diaspora uh, for his political purposes uh, in the past. You know, I think that, that you have both countries, in some respects, at fault for this relationship. And now uh, a relationship already in deep freeze 
is going to go into uh, permanent ice <laughs> for a long time. And it's odd because, I mean, I guess, what do you make of the Indian reaction today? Because it has been quite vociferous. It has been quite aggressive about essentially saying that, you know, uh, you know, the prime minister here is a stooge, that he doesn't understand his international affairs, that that they haven't listened to India's concerns about Sikh separatism within this country. Although I think following Air India, I think we're all quite aware of the threats of Sikh uh, separatism in this country. Uh, but clearly the, the idea was to attack the intelligence and to attack, attack the messenger. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I one wouldn't expect India to do anything different. If we were if we were attacked, we'd probably do the same thing, maybe somewhat, you know, more more civilly. <laughs> but I think that uh, that in terms of India, you know, knowing India as I do, this is not the idea. This is not my idea of India. I left India, nineteen sixty four, a year after Nehru had died. Mm-hmm. And my idea of India was more of a Nuruvian uh, and Gandhian idea of India. And uh, Modi's India is not the India of Gandhi or Nehru. It's the India of Modi, which is which believes in muscular polarization of its own society to win elections. You know, I, I believe the, the uh, old intelligence chap, retired chap, when he said, we never do this kind of thing, kill people across borders. Mm-hmm. But under Modi, the, the, the culture may have changed. The culture of raw, which is the intelligence agency, agency, may have changed. So I, you know, when our prime minister stands up, you take our prime minister, because he's not of one party or the other. He's the prime minister of the country. You take him at his word. But I just wish that he had given us some more substance. If you know who did it, you know, uh, then you must know who pulled the trigger. Why aren't they behind bars? I mean, you've been in those shoes. You've been in a leader's shoes. You've been in cabinet. You know what kind of uh, deliberations go around. I mean, I gather part of the timing here was that there was about to be a report released. And in fact, this government who struggled with foreign interference issues were going to be on the back foot once again and decided to come out on the front foot, maybe not spending enough time thinking about what kind of repercussions or what kind of impact this would have. India's reaction today strikes me as one, I mean, they're upset about this. This has been, this is, I mean, no matter how blustery they get, this is a nation that's that appears to have been shown in a light that they don't want to be seen in. And that, that I felt was very clear today. Well, you know, I might differ with you a little bit sure. on that, because mm-hmm. I think India under Modi is a different India. I mean, they go into Pakistan and do a cross-border military attack, send, uh, you know, send uh, their their soldiers in uh, several miles into their territory to kill their people, and then they blast it over to the to the entire world that we've done this. If they had done it, they probably would have said, well, he was an enemy of the, or our state. And so, you know, it's a different India from the India of 10 years ago. Udal Assange is the former BC Premier and Liberal Cabinet Minister. He's with us this half hour talking about the fallout from the Prime Minister's claims yesterday that India had direct involvement in the murder of a prominent Sikh separatist in Surrey uh, back in June. India, of course, denies this uh, vehemently and has come out on the attack today. There's been a tit-for-tat expulsion of diplomats from our respective high commissions. Uh, Ujol, where does this go from here? Because it feels like we're at a standoff. Canada is already in the deep freeze with China. Now India, for 
forget Russia. So, I mean, that's more than half the world and just about half the world's population that Canada finds itself in diplomatic doldrums with. Uh, this is a tough one on all sides. And yet you can't, you know, if we talk about foreign interference and protecting our citizens, you can't exactly, and, the, and if the information is correct, you can't exactly let this go unchallenged. No, you can't. Canada can't let this go unchallenged. And uh, India won't let the allegations go unchallenged. I mean, it's it's uh, that's how countries behave. I think if we are to hope for better relations between India, you have to have three things happen. One, you have to have politicians in this country with uh, a spinal cord tough enough to say we will not tolerate the advocacy of the dismemberment of a foreign country from our, our soil. Now, Canada has never done that. And Canada has kept mum even on violent scenarios. You know, when you have floats that depict how Indira Gandhi was killed in India, in Brampton, nobody nobody condemns it. No politician of any stature condemns it. And if you, if you don't do that kind of thing, uh, then I think that there is no hope. Ultimately, my sense is, given Modi's track record dealing with minorities and given their suspicion of Mr. Trudeau's ties with the Khalistanis, for better relations between India and Canada, we perhaps have to look for change of governments in both countries. That is my feeling, and that's my fear. And you've been, I mean, to put this into perspective, you've been on the receiving end of the more extremes of this argument, and it feels like there's an awful lot of people in Canada's diaspora that are simply caught in the middle of this, that this is, you know, we don't want to lump everyone into one boat here. But you're right, over time, and even after Air India in 1985, there seems to be an unwillingness in Canada to treat India's concerns with the kind of seriousness India hopes we treat them with, even though sometimes the feeling is that they simply are going too far here, that, you know, there is obviously the freedom, there is freedom of speech here to some extent, and people have the right to protest and say what they want politically, but it's a fine line. Well, it's a fine line. I mean, when when you had the the posters with the AK-47s, with the headshots of various diplomats calling them assassins, mm -hmm. you know, all over the country, particularly in British Columbia here, you know, very, very few politicians said anything or did anything. Politicians have an obligation to lead. Leading is not just making laws. Leading is also calling out when the behavior is wrong. Just as Prime Minister has called out India's behavior, if it's true, it's wrong, absolutely wrong. Just like that, he should have called out all of the various incidents and people involved in various conducts in, in this country. And he hasn't done that um, because people suspect that some of his best supporters have been Khalistanis. Are you worried? Are you worried that this may spill? I mean, we saw what impact this this fight has had when it spills over onto these shores. And this goes back a long time. And presumably we've learned something since 1985. But that's still that, that memory is still very fresh of what can happen when when a, a conflict from another land spills over into a, into a different country. Oh, I'm worried. I'm absolutely worried um, because, you know, we, we, we have a, a society where minorities have not always been equal. Minorities have been less than equal, even in this country. And we've come a long way in the in the Indian community, in the Sikh community, and other communities. We've come a long way. Uh, we are achieving equality. We're achieving more fairness. You know, we have struggles on the indigenous front. Obviously, a uh, lot more to come. And uh, if if we allow, and if the public leaders in this country allow 
the kind of dissemination of vile culture of violence, we are in for a real trouble. These are Canadians. If they are running around with posters with AK-47s, what kind of children are they raising? What kind of generation are we raising? If we don't have trouble today, we certainly will have trouble tomorrow. We already have a lot of gang violence within within various communities here. Well, Udal Assange, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Thank you. You got to call the external affairs minister. Sir, you meet the... Sir. Well, it was that kind of day for Canada's High Commissioner to India. That's him slamming the door, apparently, on a reporter trying to ask him questions after he was hauled into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs today in New Delhi. Uh, essentially, be told that one of the, our diplomats was getting booted from India after we booted one of theirs yesterday. All this after the bombshell announcement in the House of Commons that there was credible information had a role in the death of a Canadian citizen. That citizen is Sikh leader and separatist Hardeep Singh Nijjar. He was shot and killed in June outside a Sikh temple in the suburb of Surrey, the BC, the Vancouver suburb, rather, of BC. The 45-year-old was a leading supporter of a Sikh homeland in the form of an independent Khalistani state. He had been designated by India as a terrorist in July of 2020. He's a Canadian citizen, by the way. Uh, again, India vehemently denies the accusation, calling the claims absurd. Prime Minister Justin and Trudeau told reporters this morning that, like his government, India really needs to treat this with the utmost seriousness. It is extremely serious and it has uh, far-reaching consequences in international law and otherwise. For Canada, as I said yesterday, we're going to remain calm. We're going to remain grounded in our democratic principles and values. We're going to follow the evidence and make sure uh, that the work is done to hold people accountable. Uh, lots of questions for the Prime Minister today about this, particularly why there wasn't more detail around what he, what he was saying, because it is explosive. Here's a taste of some of the media reaction from India today. This is Five Live with Shiv Arur, an anchor at India Today and a former foreign correspondent. Terrified that he may lose the support of a community, he has decided to declare a diplomatic war against a country that the world sees as the most reliable and responsible nation in the war against terror. And don't miss the irony of how Justin Trudeau, in blaming India and defending a terrorist, has himself ironically painted an entire community by prioritizing a vote pack. Right. So a lot of this they think is down to diaspora politics and that Canada's never taken India's concerns seriously enough. They don't go back, but the, answer, the question they don't answer here is the, is the real one. Was India involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil? That really is the crux of it. Who it was matters, but doesn't really matter. The U.S. today uh, continuing to say they are deeply concerned about the allegations, although the Washington Post had a story today saying that they had refused to sort of back Canada up on this. The White House tonight completely denied that. The U.K. is in close touch with Canadian partners about serious allegations. Australia is also, quote, deeply concerned. There's been a lot of reaction around the world on this, and we thought we'd get a better view from outside of Canada on this, thanks to Michael Kugelman. He's director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Centre. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks. Great to be here with you. You've uh, you watch this area very closely. Uh, I know you know these uh, the intricacies of what's going on here very well. What was your reaction to this announcement in the House of Commons yesterday? Well, I, I was very surprised for several reasons. One is that uh, India has been publicly accused of being behind uh, assassinations in several countries in its region, uh, specifically. 
Pakistan as well as Nepal, but it has rarely, if ever, been accused of uh, being behind or involved with an assassination in a country in the West, uh, and particularly a key partner like Canada. And the second reason I was so surprised is that um, this allegation was made so publicly uh, that it was not conveyed um, more privately, more quietly, more discreetly. Uh, the fact that um, Trudeau decided to uh, you know, go about as public as he could before the House of Commons in a way that not just the Canadian public, but also the world on the whole, would know about these uh, very explosive allegations against the Indian government. Yeah, I mean, I watched this reverberate around the world. You can sort of see how quickly a news story moves by, the, you know, the social media posts put out by different networks. And it, it moved fast. It moved right around the globe very quickly. I think in India it was already late at night, but certainly in Britain, in the U.S., uh, in the Middle East, this was being covered extensively. What do you make so far? of allies, Canada's closest allies, reaction to this, because this puts a lot of them, particularly the U.S., in a difficult situation as they try to counterbalance China's influence by cozying up with India. Yeah, that's exactly right. And as I think was mentioned in your, your intro to this uh, piece, um, you know, there have been some, some restrained reactions from some of Canada's allies, including the U.S. and, and the U.K., uh, essentially to the effect of uh, expressing concern about the allegations, but stopping short there and not going beyond that. And you're right, uh, uh, you know, the Washington and, and London and other uh, Canadian allies, I believe, feel they need to be very careful and cautious in their public reactions because, yes, they want to assert support and solidarity for Canada and what's going through here. But at the same time, uh, they all see India as a key strategic and commercial partner on the global stage, in great part because of the perception, uh, and I think there's multi-partisan support for this in capitals around the West, that China is that key country in South Asia uh, that can work with the, uh, the West to help counter uh, China. But you know, that said, I think it's important to highlight, for example, that um, Canada and some of its top allies, all of whom are also... Um, grappling with this challenge of Sikh activism, some of which is favors independence in India, um, they are all members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. And this is essentially a group of, of allies that are part of this same intelligence grouping. And I would think that Canada is going to be expecting that its fellow members of the Five Eyes Alliance come out in support of Canada and be willing to be critical of India. We haven't seen that yet for the reasons that I mentioned, but I do think it's important to note that you have an alliance like that that brings together all of these countries, some of Canada's top uh, allies, all of whom are impacted by this, this Sikh activism playing out, perhaps not on the scale that it has in, in Canada of late, but it's still playing out. So a lot of similar challenges faced here. Yeah, certainly in Britain, we've seen it happen. What did you make of India's reaction to this? Because it feels like, I mean, we covered, I was saying earlier, we covered the lunar landing recently. Uh, it's been a pretty heady time for India in the global spotlight, a bit of a, a bit of a, well, not a renaissance, but an emergence of, of India as this, you know, emerging superpower, largest population in the world, growing fast, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. This is a heady time for India. And then this comes along. And you could tell there was a lot of bristling going on in, in, in New Delhi today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind that uh, this current Indian government is especially sensitive to any type of external criticism of its actions and policies, politics uh, internally. 
And yet, of course, you know, these allegations that Trudeau made, this is not modest <laughs> criticism. These were very serious, explosive allegations against the Indian government. So you could imagine that the the government in India would come out guns blazing in, in response, whether or not it was actually behind this uh, this killing. Um, so it was very predictable. And I would actually say that to this point, India's reaction has been just as one would have expected, the fact that it uh, it kicked out uh, a uh, senior Canadian diplomat, that was a tit for tat. I mean, that's what happens when you have these diplomatic spats. But for me, the thing to watch in the next few days is, might India go further than just tit for tat re- reactions? Could it do something like reduce um, security at Canadian diplomatic facilities in India? Uh, could, in- could India announce a downgrading of relations to a degree with Canada? Uh, could India demand that Canada uh, retract this allegation against the Indian government? If we see things like that, I think that would suggest new escalations, which would make it even more difficult for um, for this to relationship to uh, to return to some semblance of uh, of stability. But uh, yeah, to this point, the Indian reaction has been exactly what one would have expected. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. I mean, uh, there is. There are a few ways that India could could go about this. It could try to set an example of Canada, knowing that a lot of other big allies like the U.S. and the U.K. are in somewhat sensitive situations about pushing back too hard on this. But you would think that behind the scenes, that a lot of India's allies and trading partners are going to be are going to be asking, "Listen, what's going on here?" Because Canada's intelligence is generally credible. We're all part of the same intelligence community. We share information, and we want to know what happened. You know, you need to set the record straight here. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked to this point about uh, possible public uh, messaging and reactions from Canada's allies. But I do think that the uh, the, the private side to this is important. Uh, and if you look at how the U.S. and like-minded Western allies have approached India when it comes to delicate and sensitive issues, such as concerns about democratic backsliding in India, much of those conversations take place in, in private exchanges. And so I think that we could see that here as well. And, you know, let's be very clear that... Um, you know, if if the Biden administration here in Washington and and other allies and partners believe Trudeau's allegations to to be true, then you know clearly there's going to there's going to be very significant concerns about security risks uh, in in the U.S. and other countries to members of the to the Sikh the Sikh uh, diaspora. So clearly, one would think that there would have to be some type of private conversation that Canada's allies will have with India, at the least hoping to deliver a message to India that they need to work this issue through with the Canadians and try to acknowledge India's concerns and and help them out in some way. Now, India may push back against that, but uh, I do think you're right that these private conversations on some level will need to happen if they haven't uh, already happened. I mean, there were a lot of things going on domestically in Canada that probably led to the Prime Minister announcing this the way he did yesterday. Part of it was an ongoing concern over foreign interference. China, specifically, uh, the government here has been accused of not reacting quickly or properly or at all to those sorts of threats. Uh, there was a commission of inquiry that sort of began and stopped. It's starting again. So the government found itself in a very tight corner on this issue and may have felt that if another story emerged about this that showed that put them on the back foot, that it would show them in a bad light. And so and do you feel like there was a mistake made by being so public about this? I imagine it was raised uh, privately, apparently, in that G20 meeting between Modi and Trudeau last week or more than a week ago now. Um, but the public nature of it seems to have caught a lot of people off guard, to be frank. 
Right. And I said, as I said at the top of our of our chat, I mean, that's why I was really so surprised about this. The fact that it was made publicly and especially given that this government in India is especially sensitive to any type of uh, external criticism. But, uh, you know, I think that if, if the prime if Prime Minister Trudeau um, uh, you know, truly does believe that uh, Indian uh, government agents were involved in this assassination, uh, he may have simply wanted to make that known to the world. And uh, when it comes to a threat, or in this case, an assassination of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, you know, perhaps the view there uh, for him was, well, forget about the uh, the ramifications or, or the risks of this, such as the the, the, the strong likelihood that you could um, run the risk of, a, of an actual rupture in ties with an important partner. Uh, you know, maybe the goal was simply to get this information out to the world as quickly as possible. But, you know, setting that aside, you know, this is an important relationship for India and for Canada. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think we had discussed before, Canada is a big um, uh, participant in the, the broader Indo-Pacific strategy, which is about pushing back against China. And Canada, like its Western allies, views India as a critical player in that regard. There's a very deep trade and investment partnership as well. People-to-people ties are very strong. So, uh, indeed, by going public, um, you know, he, he caused a much bigger crisis in the relationship than there would have been had he kept these allegations quiet, uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this, have we been? We're often accused of being naive when it becomes when it comes to China. That 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 countries have been taking a long time to wake up to what to what China might be up to in terms of foreign influence and the diaspora and so on. Have we been Have we been the same with India? Have we not paid enough attention to what's going on? And that's not to direct fault at any one country or any one diaspora. But have we been somewhat naive to a very fast changing India and the changes on the ground under Modi in India? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, for sure, when one thinks about the Indian uh, diaspora, and particularly uh, in the West, one thinks of, uh, of success stories, for sure, uh, in terms of prosperity and becoming increasingly um, engaged with and involved in different aspects of their uh, of, of their of their countries, whether it's participating in state or local politics, or uh, uh, you know, being in the in the business industry, or whatever the case may be. But, uh, you know, I do think that this issue of um, pro-Khalistan activism, in other words, uh, members of the Sikh community who identify with this idea of a separate Sikh homeland in India, I'm sure it's well known uh, for sure uh, by uh, officials in in the West, uh, especially when you have these cases that have happened over the course of the last year where there have been some protests around Indian diplomatic facilities that have in some cases led to violence. I mean, this is a big issue, and India has has understandably reacted uh, very angrily. In some cases, including in the U.S., you've had immediate condemnations of that type of uh, violence. But, um, yeah, I think uh, on the whole, in the West, just because of broader perceptions about China and broader uh, you know, the geopolitical state of play, you know, China is considered a strategic competitor at best and a strategic rival and an outright threat at worst, very different perceptions than you have uh, with, with India, which certainly is perceived as, as a country with with flaws and challenges, including the issue with, with democratic backsliding. But I think that, um, you know, it's not viewed as a, uh, as a major challenge or threat to the interests uh, or the goals of these of these countries in the West, and that may impact thinking and perceptions about diasporas and and that type of thing as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if we ever actually learn more, if there's an arrest, if there's more information about what exactly these links were, because I feel a lot of us are, are still kind of in the dark about what exactly these claims entail. Michael Kugelman, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's a big conference going on in Edmonton this week on a very pressing topic, I think, for a lot of us who live in cities in this country. I think all of us have noticed uh, that the landscape in our cities has changed, perhaps for the worse, in the past little while. It's a combination. It's a collision of many social issues going on all at the same time, not the least of which is this horrific opioid crisis, the homelessness issue. A lot of issues uh, have, bird, have sort of ballooned or come together um, to create what we've seen as a rise in violent crime in a lot of our cities, the violent crime rates up in places like Toronto and Winnipeg, and also up not as significantly, but in cities like Edmonton and Calgary and Vancouver, Victoria, where I am. Uh, and it's become a bit of an issue where violent crime rates at the highest it's been since 2007, although the overall crime rate has fallen a little bit. Uh, today, Dallas's police chief, who's quite outspoken, Eddie Garcia, spoke today at the inaugural Safety of Our Cities conference being hosted by the Edmonton Police Service. We should not be in the homelessness business, quite frankly. Uh, and we're being let down by other systems that are in place that then just look at the police to always be the ones to answer this call where this is a, a social issue that needs to be dealt with in a different matter. We will deal with the criminal element that's in encampments and in certain areas, or, or, or example, but being, being homeless shouldn't be a crime that the police need to deal with. That is Dallas's police chief, Eddie Garcia, speaking today at this inaugural Safety of Our Cities conference in Edmonton. Again, it's bringing together police chiefs, academics, bureaucrats, and many others from right across the continent to talk about public safety in our cities in particular. Because, of course, while the circumstances perhaps in big American cities may be a bit different from what it is in big Canadian cities, there are a lot of similarities. And joining me now with his perspective on this from Edmonton is Winnipeg Police Chief Danny Smythe. He happens to be president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. We thought his uh, input on this, his insight on this would be a very interesting to hear. Uh, Chief Smythe, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This seems like a, a prescient time to have a Safety of Our Cities conference, uh, needless to say. It's been a, a difficult couple of years as we emerge from the pandemic. Uh, what did you go in there hoping to learn? Uh, because I know a lot of cities are facing similar issues and everyone sort of seems to be trying to tackle it in their own way. You know, a lot of different things that we've been discussing the last couple of days. So a lot of timely things. Uh, today, we spent time just talking about uh, substance use and, and, and how the police fit into that conversation. Certainly had a chance to see a little bit more detail about the Alberta model and, and their approach to, to substance use in the community. Transit safety came up uh, today. We talked a lot about that. A lot of similar problems all across the country and, uh, uh, you know, lots of innovation, lots of, uh, lots of different things we're being exposed to. I guess I'll ask you this as Winnipeg's chief of police, but what are some of the things that you see on, in your community right now that are concerns up for you and where you feel like policing is is not is how, is struggling to meet the challenge? Well, one of the things uh, more recently in my community is is our downtown has changed a lot as we've come out of the pandemic and uh, lots of evidence of of homelessness and addictions and mental health. So really just kind of come up with a strategy to be more visibly present downtown to kind of kind of turn that perception around for a lot of people that are now returning downtown. You know, many people are coming back and, and to their offices. 
I'm hearing concerns from the business community and the, and the sports and hospitality entertainment community that that really want to be welcoming, but but are are struggling a little bit. Right, and I'm sure you've witnessed that where you are in Edmonton. We know it's true of Vancouver, of of Montreal. Of I mean, it's it's everywhere right now. Where do you think the gaps are? Because I think this is one of those problems that that most people see firsthand, uh, if not every day, then then often. Uh, where do you, where do you think the solutions could lie in trying to tackle something? Is I mean, this is a monumental public health uh, emergency uh, addiction, and of course we know the the impacts of of homelessness and so on. I mean, there's a lot of different social issues all colliding here at the same time. Uh, and that's not something that police can solve by themselves. No, absolutely not. But but definitely the police have a role in this because there are times when arrest may be necessary for, for an individual who is just either committed a, 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 such an egregious crime that needs to be held accountable. Or I think, you know what, we were exposed to some ideas about uh, people that are just not willingly trying to seek out treatment for, for addictions and and whether there's a way to even mandate people to take treatment. And it, it sounded like a bold idea today's discussion, but uh, uh, certainly it's something that I think is worth taking a look at. So to answer your question, it's all about partnerships for sure. And and I think there's lots of evidence of of partnerships, strong partnerships that already exist and others that, that need to, uh, to, to need to be further established. Is it is it accepted amongst um, chiefs of police and others that it's it's usually a pretty small percentage, even of of your population that you may see, uh, you know, without without that are homeless and addicted, that it's a pretty small percentage of that population that seems to be at the root of many of these issues. So I'll take a step back there. I, mm-hmm. I think you would get agreement from most police chiefs that a lot of the crime that we see is committed by a relatively small. Uh, population within whatever community you're in. You know, this is kind of a new dynamic now where mental health and in some cases the overlap of addictions, you know, so these are not necessarily career criminals, but they're people that have, um, you know, find themselves in circumstances where, uh, you know, they're committing crimes to feed addictions or, you know, they're not able to get mental health to treatment and, and they're being left to them to themselves in the community. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic, but again, I think partnerships uh, are, are key here. Um, you know, most cities that I know of, both in North America and certainly across Canada, these uh, you know, pack teams where we're pairing up with clinicians to try to uh, navigate this has been helpful. When you look at, um, at at some of the resourcing as well, and I think this came up in conversation yesterday at the, at the uh, at the conference that you're at about the politicization and so on, um, do you have the resources you need? Because sometimes when one looks at it from the outside, you think, okay, maybe maybe we need to pour some more money at this. But then you realize that it should be pretty targeted because already policing is a big big expense for a lot of communities. Uh, they're facing other challenges around housing and so on. I mean, money is tight these days in a lot of municipalities. We see it in Toronto, obviously. How do you how do you square that circle? Well, I I, I think we're seeing investment in in resources here. You know, if I was looking at my own city, we we certainly need more in terms of uh, treatment uh, and and the ability to divert people into uh, programming or treatment. You know, I I think that's a real common theme that I'm seeing across the country. You know, we are seeing some investment in some policing, but it's been very focused either on uh, violent offender type units where we're, we're seeking to 
you know, pull out people that probably shouldn't be uh, circulating in the community or very focused on these team approaches to uh, mental health and addiction. Right. I mean, clearly, the, the, you know, the force, the force treatment is, is a controversial one. Yeah, um, it is. It was it a is. bold idea yeah. that was introduced yeah. for sure. What was your, what's been the reaction to it? Because it is one that raises, that raises a fair amount of controversy. You know, it, it, uh, it, it was interesting listening to some both academics and, and uh, um, you know, some government officials from Alberta talk about that. And, and uh, it it's clearly looks like that will be part of the Alberta model potentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess the way it was described, and it, and it makes sense a little bit, is the sense that it's just not humane to leave people, particularly in harsh climates like like Canada, where people are living in conditions that just are not are not good. That's inhumane in and of itself. So, the idea of you know mandating somebody into treatment, it's a bold one, and it's not going to be welcomed by everyone, but it might have some merit in exploring for sure. We're watching this bail reform bill go through. Uh, it, it was first on the list of things to do by Parliament uh, on Monday. How much would Bill C-48 help here? Because it does tighten up some of these bail conditions. I think it has a, a piece in in the solution here. Uh, you know, we talked about it in the earlier session. You know, there are uh, a, a segment of people that just don't seem willing or able to comply with conditions of release. And and they're harming our community. And, and we saw examples of that last year with the number of uh, officer-related deaths that we experienced. But I want to emphasize the harm to the community because all of us uh, have experienced, you know, uh, you know, fairly major crimes that have been committed by people that were on bail or on release conditions that had already been released for violent crimes. So, I, you know, it's a very targeted group uh it's not the it's not a panacea but i think it will help how is how is morale these days because you just mentioned it and we talked about it on the show as well it was a very tough year 20 the last 12 months have been a tough time for police right across the country especially with the deaths of so many officers in the line of duty what's morale been like because sometimes i can imagine i mean officers get up and go to work every day just like the rest of us the task ahead of them and the dangers they face can be overwhelming you know, I think uh, I get a sense that uh, morale is, is coming back. You know, there's nothing worse for our people than doing the same job over and over again. So when we're dealing with people, you know, and we're, we're stuck in a hospital waiting to be diagnosed with someone with mental health and then finding them back out in the community the next day, those are the kind of things that hurt morale. You're right. We had a rough year last year. We had tremendous supports for that kind of thing. Uh, our, our people you know, are, are, are resilient and know about the supports that are there for them. A lot of focus internally by most services on the health and well-being of, of their members. No different for uh, for me in Winnipeg. And it is certainly one of the goals, one of the main goals for my tenure as the president of the CECP, you know, right in the middle of just gathering a repository for police across the country, whether you're a big agency or a small agency, they have access to the resources they need to find help. How about the politicization of this? I know it's more acute in the U.S. and you have U.S. chiefs of police there from from communities that are big, big and small. Uh, I know Vancouver's police chief was talking about it a bit. They've had three. He's served under three different mayors who all have three very different mandates when it comes to policing in their communities. Uh, what would you like to see from politicians? I suspect it's consistency. 
Well, I, I think, you know, I, I mentioned this already. Partnerships are important here. And I don't think it's an either or approach. If we're going to invest, you know, in treatment, which we need to do, we also need to invest in, in, in policing as well. These are not mutually exclusive things. So these partnerships, whether it's with clinicians to deal with mental health or, or addictions or, you know, whether it's homeless, uh, you know, some of the homeless uh, situations that we we're finding ourselves uh, in the community with, you know, just I think we can invest in all of these things to try to tackle uh, holistically. Yeah. And, and how do how do police I mean, we know that poli- the policing is part of the solution here. I mean, it is. It absolutely is. How do you position yourself within this conversation that's going on and and you hear frustration from people living in cities as well you mentioned it earlier in and around winnipeg more people are coming back downtown business owners in many parts of the country are getting kind of fed up with some of the lawlessness that's being seen um how do you position yourself to be part of this solution and because you i know you're getting pushback from certain from some politicians in some corners that mightn't see it you know are thinking of different solutions than some of the ones you've been talking about so I think I see it in two ways. You know, enforcement is a solution at times, but it has to be the right solution for the situation. So if somebody out and out, you know, create, uh, c- commits a pretty egregious offense, a violent offense, enforcement absolutely is the, the, the right tactic. On the, on, the, on the flip side of that, we're out there in the community every day. We're also in a position to help divert people to the program that they need. You know, we, we work and, and are pretty well versed with many of the social navigators out there and can steer people uh, to, the, to, to the programming or the help that they need. That's a role that we've always uh, been a part of. And, uh, you know, for the very simple reason that we're one of the few organizations that's out there 24-7. So it's not all about enforcement. Sometimes it's about diverting or recommending people to programming, but they just don't know where to find it. Well, Chief Smythe, uh, thank you so much. Hey, not at all. Glad you uh, appreciate the interest. Bryce in Southern Ontario wanted to point out that the Million March for Children uh, happens tomorrow. Uh, he was talking about sort of why this is happening um, to push back against the liberal agenda with all this gender stuff happening and being pushed on in schools. This is a common complaint. I was watching this go by on Facebook yesterday. Lots of people posting about it. Of course, uh, there are counter protests. This has been denounced uh, by LGBTQ advocates who are saying they're calling it an anti LGBTQ protest happening tomorrow. So there is already quite a bit of fire going on between what this is about, who's holding it, and why. Now, Now, my idea is in this country, everyone is entitled to an opinion as long as you're not harming somebody else. So if this is peaceful and this doesn't intimidate kids, you know what? Uh, Okay. But, you know, this is a fine line about what exactly is going on in people's schools and who should make these judgments, right? Parents obviously have rights when it comes to their children. And education is also about teaching children about values in many ways. And there is a collision going on between those two things. And I feel like sometimes uh, in this case, what's happening here with uh, a lot of these issues around trans issues is that it is it is a it is um, replacing something else. It is standing in for something else. And we're forgetting about who's being targeted by this already vulnerable kids. Now, those who think that this is somehow being pushed on children, I mean, we need to address concerns, right? That's what this is all about, is finding some kind of common ground. And it feels like this has become more and more 
uh, divisive, right? Uh, I'm on the side of people being able to be who they are, of people being able to be free to express who they are. I think it's important. I think we want our children to grow up happy. I think we want them to grow up safe. But I also think parents have rights here. And I think a lot of Canadians agree on that as well. And the fine line between what is hate and what is not is thin. And I don't like people throwing around the word the word hate so liberally um, because I think a lot of people come at, at these things. I think everyone here has good intentions at the end of the day, except for a few, except for a few. Uh, we'll see what happens. I don't have anything more to say on that. What we wanted to talk about was how this battle is spilled over into school libraries and lots of debate over what should and shouldn't be on library shelves. It's often thought of as a battle being played out in the U.S., but clearly it's been happening here with demands from different sides of the political spectrum on what is appropriate. For example, earlier this year, a Manitoba woman called for the ban of certain LGBTQ uh, and sex education books from libraries in Brandon School Division. I just ask that you would remove any books that cause our kids to question whether they are in the wrong body. You know, but but where should a child go then? I mean, I don't think, I think children are innately curious and will go find out things about what they're feeling no matter what. So why not give them the opportunity to do that in an area that's supervised and controlled, educators are there? I mean, to me, that makes a certain amount of sense. You don't take things, you don't remove things from people. You don't hide things. I mean, there are obviously things that we don't put in children's hands. But where is that line? I find that a really tough, it's a really tough one to figure out. Last week, of course, the Peel School District came under huge fire. Uh, because of confusion caused around a weeding process in its school libraries where the marching orders from the ministry were to ensure that all books were inclusive and culturally responsive and relevant, uh, which again, you know, sometimes, though, how do you define that, right? So this has become a bit of a battleground. We wanted to figure out what exactly was going on and how do you solve it? Uh, retired teacher librarian Anita Brooks-Kirkland is now the chair of the Canadian School Libraries, and she joins me now. Anita, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben, for inviting me. Tell me a bit about what you do, uh, what your organization does. Well, Canadian School Libraries is a nonprofit charitable organization um, that is dedicated to education and research about the role of the school library learning commons in education. Uh, and we are the holders of the national standards for school libraries. We publish an online uh, journal. We uh, provide all sorts of different resources, all of which are open source that anybody can visit and use. Now, this is uh, the school library, at least when I was growing up. I mean, I went to a French school and was English speaking. So the school library for me was an interesting and it, it was never the best school. I, I never went to schools with great school libraries, but they pretty much flew under the radar. As far as I remember in the 70s and the 80s, this was not I mean, there was some controversy in the U.S., but not a ton. It felt like this was pretty much, uh, you know, this was within the school system's purview, and it was kind of left there. Well, well, yes, and I think school libraries after you were in school likely mm -hmm. rose a little bit more in prominence. I think um, they've become very innovative in practice in uh, supporting learning of all different kinds, including with collections. But, you know, I cannot lie, school libraries are under stress, they're underfunded, like a lot of areas of education. And uh, so, you know, we do our very best to, um, to help people do the best that they possibly can. Tell me a bit about what's because I think sometimes people see the headlines, and there's been some stories, uh, there's been a whole bunch of stories people have been reacting to, in the past couple of years about what's in a school library uh, and people are coming at it from all sides 
politically. What exactly is going on? School libraries seem to be under quite the magnus quite the magnifying glass these days. Well, yes, we are. I mean, I think, you know, it's really a symptom of um, the political and social uh, strains that we're under, I would say, these days. And there's just a lot of pressure. And, you know, when people um, have a problem with an idea, a book about that idea is an easy target, quite frankly. And then school libraries are um, an easy target because our audience is young people and um young adults. And so, you know, people are concerned about children. I get that. Uh, You know, as far as what our collections hold, uh, we really have to go to the mission of the school library. And that is to support the curriculum, like an inquiry based approach to the curriculum. So, you know, beyond the textbook, we need resources for kids to find out information that uh, enriches their learning. Um, But it's also there to Um, engage kids in reading and help them develop a lifelong habit of reading. And we do that by having, um, you know, the latest, greatest books, quite frankly, that they're very interested in and and a collection that um, where they can see themselves reflected and where, you know, fiction often offers a window into seeing, um, uh, seeing and potentially understanding other people's lives. So, you know, the nonfiction collection, that inquiry collection, it needs to be current information. You know, if we are are asking kids to do research, then we can't have a book on the shelf that says, you know, someday man will land on the moon. You know, yeah, yeah, Yeah. it has to be current. But, you know, fiction, uh, fiction, there's a lot more skill and discretion in how we um collect materials and how we deselect materials or weed. It seems odd. I mean, and, and going, and I don't want to harken back to my school years because they are many decades ago. So we don't, it's, it, everything has changed. It seems odd that there is so much concern about what's in a school library these days when the average student has the world at their fingertips. They can research and read just about anything they want unfettered as long as, I mean, I'm no parents control this stuff, but really a school library used to be kind of where you went to learn. And now it's sort of, it's there, but there's so much other stuff out there as well. Well, you're right. Kids can find information from all sorts of places these days. And most of them are not great places to find information, you know. And uh, so kids are always going to look, they're going to try to find out what they're, uh, what they're wondering about. And quite frankly, wouldn't you rather them find out from uh, information that has been selected by professionals and is reliable. And the other pieces too, that, um, you know, the print collection of the school library these days is only one piece. You know, we typically uh, subscribe to um, uh, online databases of uh, information, uh, nonfiction, journalistic, academic information, that uh, for for research and there's wonderful databases these days that are um, directed at uh, different ages of uh, kids so they're readable. Tell me a bit about this 
culling process because I think I mean, it's interesting to see the battle over what is on school library shelves because it is it really seems to encompass no one seems to be particularly happy about it so you get people reacting as they did last week to this notion that Peel Regional District School Board was pulling any book older than 2008 off its shelves and so on and so people, kids were coming into school and there was very little on the shelves uh, then there, of course there's all the battle over what sorts of books about identity and so on end up on those shelves and parents who as you put it put it earlier who disagree with the idea then disagree with the book in the library uh what do you say what what exactly has been going on i guess we could start with culling because it's an interesting yeah. one is it really is it really necessary to take every book off the shelf that's older than 15 years old uh, no it isn't yeah. but uh let me explain what happens uh i don't like the word culling because it sounds like you know well, it sounds it, like cancer yeah, throwing yeah, it away Yes. You know, we, we call it weeding. And if you can think of a garden that, you know, may have all sorts of wonderful plants and flowers in it, but it's full of weeds, then you can't see the beauty of the flower for the weeds. And so, you know, we remove the weeds and all of a sudden, all of that wonderful material that we have is visible and shines. And that's very similar to a weeding process. Um, you know, the fact is there's all sorts of professional guidelines. This is nothing new. Uh, so in the terms of information texts, you know, 15 years is a long, long time. If you, you know, my example of someday man will land on the moon. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's an extreme example. But if you think of the progress of science over the past few years, uh, if you have books on germs and diseases or, uh, you know, contagious diseases, and it doesn't mention anything about COVID, then, you know, you've got a problem with that book. If we have books about our Indigenous peoples that use um, terms, you know, they may have been written 15 years ago, and uh, we don't use the terminology or the imagery anymore that maybe was used in, at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, when you think about Canadian history and, you know, how much we have learned since the revelations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the uh, children, uh, you know, in residential schools. And, you know, quite frankly, the truth about Sir John A. Macdonald. And, uh, you know, we would really need to look at that. If I were reading a Canadian history section right now, then those shelves might look kind of bare, but it would inform what I was going to uh, select to replace it. The 2008 fiction picture books, that's that's a little bit more difficult because, uh, you know, things come in waves. Uh, we, I don't know if you remember, you say school was a long time ago, but, you know, I had favorite books and favorite series of books and I love them. And, uh, you know, everybody can identify with books that they loved when they were kids. But, you know, if you reread them now, they might, you know, some things about them, about the perspective and so on, Might you might see some things that you didn't understand then. But more importantly, do they appeal to today's readers? Because if they won't take them off the shelf, if they won't read them, then why are they there? Uh, I know one student was very concerned because she thought we were erasing history and, you know, that her own history of Japanese Canadian heritage yeah. and, and the example of Anne Frank and so on. What people don't realize, I think, is that there's so much wonderful uh, fiction being written more currently on those themes and, uh, you know, that do appeal to uh, readers. We're, we're not erasing history. We're, uh, you know, making sure it's it's up to date and relevant, uh, quite frankly. 
why right. um, why certain books that have been mentioned were removed during this um, process. Well, yes, we didn't get who, <laughs> yeah. who knows? You know, maybe they were, um, you know, worn out from uh, being loved, and you know, the, they were removed because of condition, and they're going to be replaced. You know, that uh, yes. it could be. You know, and there's all sorts of things. Anita Brooks-Kirkland is with us this half hour. She's chair of the Canadian School Libraries. We're talking about all the attention being paid to what's on school library shelves these days, sort of caught right in the middle of what could be called a culture war. I guess the problem, uh, Anita, often is that what what appears to be weeds to some are flowers to others. And <laughs> and when it comes to intellectual stuff, intellectual property, and you mentioned the diary of Anne Frank earlier, I mean, that is a pinnacle book that, that uh, no, don't forget, it's important that a parent could talk to their child about, I suppose they could give it to them at yeah. home as well. Um, but sometimes I think, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time working in China. I spent some time in North Korea. You got to watch out. You got to watch out when you start using terms like, you know, weeding out processes and books are inclusive and culturally responsive, right? I mean, the these are terms that start to look very loaded to the outside person. You don't want your school librarian dictating necessarily what is and isn't good history, I guess, is what it boils down to. Well, I think in in this case, uh, you know, the 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 book is uh it's an iconic book, and I think it does belong in every collection. Uh, you know, the difficulty with uh making decisions about fiction texts is that uh you know, fiction is written in the time it was written from that perspective. And that's how we learn about the perspectives. And the, you know, the very things that may be challenging about the book are sometimes the things that attract censors, you know, so the the whole, it's important that we have books um, that are older in the collection. But again, uh, you know, we have to have collections that appeal as far as you know, the loaded thing about diversity and inclusion and, mm -hmm. and these kinds of texts, you have to remember that um, the teacher librarians who are selecting these resources are selecting from the best of the best. They are um, specialized vendors that uh, specialize in supplying school libraries. We rely on reviews from highly respected sources like the Canadian Children's Book Centre, uh, you know, they're they're not just randomly putting propaganda. There are standards um, that are met that um, that we follow for selecting resources. Yeah, how would you turn down the heat then? I mean, and I think you you started off by pointing out what the issue is. Oftentimes, when people are faced with people are faced with new ideas or either faced with old ideas they don't want to see represented anymore, one of the easiest places to go after is the book, right? And, and the, certainly the book in the school library, because of its tar very targeted, very select audience. But how would you turn the heat down on this? Because it feels like the school library should be taken out of this a little bit. It feels like it's found itself in the middle of a storm uh, that it doesn't really belong in. You're uh, you're uh, absolutely right. You know, it's a case of be careful what you wish for because we clamor for attention, quite frankly, in school libraries, and now we have it. It's maybe not the kind of attention that we want. But I think you know, there's a lot to learn from um, what happens historically in libraries. You know, reading is supposed to be an ongoing cyclical process. It's not supposed to be a big event. The Peel Board was under some pressure with the director from the ministry. And uh, so weeding, I guess, necessarily became a big event. Um, we know when that happens, it attracts people's attention. 
Uh, you know, people don't like to see books thrown out. It's, uh, you know, there's something about books that tugs at the human heart. And if I deleted a, a, a web page, nobody would blink an eye. If Netflix removes a movie that nobody's interested in, nobody would pat an eyelash. But a book is different. But, you know, the way that we know now to really manage this is to come out ahead of time and explain what you're doing, what process you're using, all the frequently asked questions like what happens to the weeded book and are you going to replace it? If there's a like a communications plan ahead of time, I think a lot of this um, could have been avoided. Anita, thank you so much for your time on this. I appreciate it. I really appreciate your interest, Ben. Thank you. You've taught your children to be polite and friendly, but have you taught them when not to be? Hi there. Do you live around here? Uh-huh. You going to school? Yes. Well, uh, I, I could give you a ride. Last year, 50,000 children disappeared, many of them from nice, safe neighborhoods. It's okay. Come on, help me. Talk to your children about not talking to strangers and do it today. A message for your child's safety from the American Medical Association. Yeah, I remember watching those on American cartoons, and, and they were so effective because from a very young age, I think we were all taught about so-called stranger danger, right? And for good reason, for good reason. Uh, it's good to be street smart when you're young, and sometimes it takes those kind of kind of alarming uh, PSAs to get you there. But it often sticks with us well beyond childhood, right? We sort of have an aversion to strangers. We're kind of raised to be a little suspicious of other people. Part of it's innate, right? We're just a, a little suspicious of people we don't recognize uh, or don't know. That's especially true today with the with smartphones essentially allowing us to bury our heads in our own little digital world every time we're in an environment where engaging with a stranger might be possible. Public transit, checkout lines, you get the, you get the idea. But what if cutting ourselves off from talking to people we don't know, even casually for a few seconds, is not actually a good thing. What if that kind of contact is good for us? Because in so many ways, we're social creatures. We like to connect with other people. Um, take this email from James. He just sent this when he had this question out tonight about, are you comfortable talking to strangers? It's a great one. I photograph strangers, he says, what I call a stranger portrait, and I've met many interesting people with great stories, moving stories. It might seem scary, but most people are very friendly. James Absolutely. Most people are fine to talk about themselves if you break the ice. The problem is who breaks the ice? It's so easy just to go about your daily routine and not ever engage with someone who's not familiar to you. My next guest grew up with parents who had absolutely no fear of striking up a conversation with perfect strangers about just about anything and just about anywhere. And he started to notice his own stranger skills were starting to evaporate. evaporate. He decided to reverse course and take a look at why it mattered so much. In The Power of Strangers, uh, Joe Cohane sets out on a journey, really, to find out what happens when we, when we bridge that distance, when we make contact with people we don't know. And he figures out that a lot of this is, a lot of our misconceptions or preconceptions about it are absolutely wrong, and that we benefit a lot when we speak with strangers. And uh, he found out that, really, it's never a negative experience, most of the time. I mean, there are some there are some times it's not going to work out for you, right? But most of the time, people are open to being talked to, and they like to talk about, you know, they like to share. Uh, so Joe Cohane, he is a writer and editor. He's the author of The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. He joins me now from Brooklyn. Joe, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I'm happy to be here. 
It's, I mean, the benefits of connecting in a suspicious world kind of says it all, right? But what was the, what was the, how did you decide, okay, I need to write a book about this topic? Because I think a lot of us think about it, but don't often sit down to actually put the blood, sweat and tears into, you know, digging into it. Yeah. I mean, I was raised by people who talk to strangers all the time. My parents would do things like reach across a table in a crowded restaurant because they saw something <laughs> interesting that someone else was doing and they'd managed to pull it off without being without freaking people out. Um, and so as a kid, I watched them do that constantly and I watched them make friends and I saw that that was a pretty good way to live. Um, as I got older, I became a journalist. I worked in journalism for 20 years. So that, uh, as you know, involves a lot of talking to strangers. But um, But funnily enough, a few years ago, I sort of noticed that I had stopped doing it. So, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of great experiences in my past, like formative things that arose from talking to strangers. But then all of a sudden I just wasn't doing it anymore. I would go to a bar and I would just be like one of those losers just staring at their phone the whole time. I found myself like subconsciously getting into the self-checkout lane at the pharmacy, like all this stuff where I just seemed to be withdrawing from the public. And, uh, and I started to wonder why. And, um, and as far as I could tell, it was two things. One, I had just had a kid. And, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but that tends to suck up all your time and energy and, uh, and attention. So I wasn't just in circulation like I had been before. But I think more to the point was just the phone. You know, increasingly, if you're of a certain privileged class, you can basically go the rest of your life without ever talking to a stranger again. So the efficiency of that, coupled with just being tired from having a baby, um, sort of took me out. But I definitely felt like I was losing serendipity. I was losing some sort of richness of my own existence. Um, and I was wondering if there was like research to, to um, back up how I was feeling. I mean, that just sent me down, you know, a hundred different avenues into this project. You have a, a great upbringing too, because you mentioned your parents and how, how gregarious or how uh, approachable or approaching both your mother and father were, but your father owned a funeral home. Is that right? I mean, that was his, it's not one a job one associates with being outgoing, but come to think of it, you'd have to be outgoing. Oh, it's a very human business. So yeah, my, my grandfather was a funeral director. My father was and is. My siblings all work in the family business. I, I'm the black sheep. I'm the only one who didn't do it. Um, but yeah, a lot of that involves like that job is high touch. That job involves like talking to people at their worst, at their absolute saddest and connecting with them as humans and, and kind of getting them through a difficult, um, a difficult ordeal. So for sure, they're great at that. I mean, my whole family is uh, really good talkers and they're all from the city of Boston too, which is, you know, all Bostonians tend to be, um, I, I, I say walking bowls of loudmouth soup, you know, it's definitely a talking people. Um, so it's... I think those two things together definitely, definitely kind of trained me for this sort of work. Yeah, I grew up in Montreal, which is it's it's gregarious in its own way. But Bostonia, a lot of Bostonians obviously was used to go to Montreal. You know, there's a difference in the drinking ages and so on. It's a fun place. We have a lot of rivalries, both uh, on the ice and it used to be. Well, I guess our baseball teams never played each other, but at least in hockey we used to. So we used lots of Bostonians, and yeah, they are. They are. There's a lot of talk going on, and very approachable too, which is or very approaching, which is which is which is a. I mean, this is before phones, but and, and you mentioned as well that you know your your parents were would engage in conversations and. I guess growing up, you you would have had the experience of never having watched them sort of get a really bad reaction because that's the fear, right? The fear is you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to get shut down and then you're going to have to live with that. Oh, sure. I mean, that's one of the leading fears that people tell researchers about talking to strangers is just the fear of rejection. Um, and, you know, it, it's overstated. You know, a lot of people go into... Um, experiments that psychologists have done, particularly over the last 15 years, where they're sent out on, to talk to strangers in public. And they're like horrified at, the, at this idea, right? Like they think they're going to go out there, they're going to freeze up, people are going to think there's something wrong with them, they're going to be rejected, or the people aren't going to be interesting. 
And it seems like it's almost unanimous that the experience people have participating in these studies is that the fear of rejection is wildly overstated. Very few, um, if any, are ever like outwardly rejected by people. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, this is a fear we have. It's a baseless fear. But I certainly grew up watching my parents do this. Um, and it seemed so easy to them because it was easy to them, you know, partly because you're human. Like humans have a gift for socializing when they feel comfortable enough to do it. Um, but also because when you start to do it, you just you kind of give up this vibe. You know, you give up this energy. You have this look on your face that puts people at ease and opens them to the possibility of an interaction. And my parents are great at that. And they always led with like curiosity. You know, they would go in yeah. and they would ask a question or they would make a comment, you know, which ends up being what all the experts tell you to do. Um, and to this day, they're in their 80s now and they go on vacation. They come back with friends. You know, we have <laughs> holidays at their house and there are like new people at the house. <laughs> My father brought home, he brought home bagpipers one time to Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I hear Bob and Irma from Tuskegee or something, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable talent. talent. I love it. Yeah. And I, 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 I do that, you know, now that I'm out of like the, the really young years of having a child. Um, I've like redoubled my efforts to do that, to just like keep making friends, keep talking to people. You know, it's just a really rich way to live. Yeah. I mean, listening to you talk about what, by the time you, I think we've all been there, by the time you get to the bar by yourself, you're busy, you know, you just want to maybe a little alone time and you sort of put down all those tools that you used to be able to use when you're without a phone by yourself. Because if you're carrying a book, someone might ask you about the book, right? But I think with a phone that you don't open any doors for anyone to talk to, you kind of cut yourself off and you must've realized there was something missing there. Yeah, you're just, I mean, you're in your office, you know, when you're on your yeah. phone. Um, it is funny. There was a bar across the street from my daughter's preschool. So I, I did become one of the fathers who would like get a drink at the bar before picking up his <laughs> two-year-old daughter at preschool. But I remember going in one time and just swearing that I'm not going to do this. I'm going to keep the phone in my pocket. I'm going to talk to the bartender. And I ended up getting like a 40-minute lecture on the, the reproductive habits of the leopard slug from this guy. <laughs> And I, was like, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that's good or bad. Fascinating. I had given no thought to leopard slugs, um, but he was great. He was hilarious, and uh, and you know it was like a really pleasant and interesting way to pass some time. And also, like I did not expect the ball to bounce in that direction. Um, it was really fun. You figured out that because we look back at time, I think maybe it's from two thousand and one, a space odyssey or whatever. We always think of our, you know a history of tribalism, a history of suspicion of the outsider, you know, all those movies set in towns where everyone hates everybody that's from the outside. And it turns out that that's not really the case. We've always had to be somewhat adaptable socially and move outside our own little circles. Yeah, it, it, this was one of the most fascinating things to me about doing this project was that I, like I think a lot of people, had a pretty pessimistic view of human nature. Um, and we do tend to have a pretty pessimistic view of our nature as being like first and foremost xenophobic. And then, you know, when in the rare occasions we're not like that, we're actually social and we're actually friendly and we can actually find ways to communicate, cooperate with people we don't know. Um, and, you know, sure, if you're drawing your perceptions of humanity from from media or social media, that is overwhelmingly negative. And if that's the data you're taking and you're going to have a pretty toxic view of humans. Um, but when you think about it, when you think about the costs of war, you think about the costs of fighting, the energy involved, the lives involved, if a species was just fighting all the time, it would not have spread the way that humans spread. It would not have flourished the way humans have flourished because it just takes so much out of a population to be fighting all the time. So what I found really interesting was I started going through the anthropological record, going back through a lot of old field reports um, to try to formulate a, a broader understanding of what was actually going on here. 
And what it looks like is that the, the tendency that humans have is to be social, right? Like we have a genius for socializing. We're really very good in the context of the, national, the natural world at making bonds with people we don't know, at talking to people we don't know. I mean, the mere fact that like you can put 100 humans on a subway train and they don't kill each other shows you how far we've actually come from like chimpanzees, right? So they're among our closest genetic relatives. They're very xenophobic. So I think for starters, we want to give ourselves a little more credit for being able to be social. Now, we're not like that all the time. Um, there's a, a, a paleontologist named Franz DeWall who described humans as being bipolar apes. So in one hand, we can be phenomenally violent and xenophobic, but other times we can be remarkably social. And so when you go through the anthropological, anthropological record, you certainly do find instances of xenophobia. But yeah. by and large, the default is to try to seek out social connection. And when you think about that, that makes sense. You know, it makes sense to make more friends. You expand your social network. You find out information. You find out techniques. You find out you find mates like, you know, it benefits the species to have more people in the mix. Um, but what was really cool about a lot of that is that um, anthropologists observed all over the world in cultures that had no contact with each other these uh, greeting rituals which were these rituals that the traditional societies would form in order to make contact with strangers safe and what they served to do was you know someone would approach a camp and they would follow this ritual and the ritual is designed to show that the newcomer the stranger right has like self-control has intelligence they're not chaotic they're not going to do something terrible if you let them close and usually what happened in these greeting rituals was like a series of stages where the stranger and the in the group, the band, say hunter-gatherer band, would draw closer together. Like a representative from the band would walk out and meet the stranger after the stranger sat under a tree for three hours to show that they meant no harm, you know? And you gradually went through this process and then eventually you reassured each other that you were safe and that you could have some kind of contact, right? And the more that happens, the more you learn about other bands that are around, the more you learn about natural resources, the more you may make friends, make mates. Um, and that's sort of the, the beginning of human civilization, like that ability to do that, to grow the group, um, to make these sort of alliances. You know, people started to travel, you know, hospitality traditions started to form, and then humanity just spread all over the place. But I think it's really interesting and valuable to remember that fact. You know, we do get hung up on the worst parts of human nature, but to see the genius of a species that does this, which, you know, is rare in the context of the natural world. Um, most apes don't really behave like this, bonobos do actually, which we share a lot of genetic uh, similarities with. Um, but that's a remarkable thing. And we should lean into that. You know, we should, we should capitalize on that and embrace that. Yeah. And if you think back to, to those groups, if they had all had phones and they'd all been reading about the other group on Twitter, uh, one wonders whether they would have been so welcoming, right? I mean, you're right in the sense that modern technology, and we often talk about technology and influencing the way we socialize, but it's hard to imagine something that's changed us more than the ability to carry around our lives on a device in our palm in, when it comes to actually having to socialize with other people. I mean, I was in, in London a year ago uh, covering the Queen's funeral and I got on the tube. And of course, you can use the phone on the tube in, in London and everybody had their head down. I mean, everybody had their head down. Right. And this is the middle of one of these those moments where if you were in and around the funeral, people were strangers were talking to each other and people were commiserating over this moment in British history and so on. But you get on the tube and everyone was on their phone. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just a way, you know, people have very easy ways to occupy themselves. Um, I spoke to an anthropologist by the name of Polly Wisner, an American anthropologist who was fantastic, and she's done a lot of great and valuable fieldwork. 
and she just pointed out that for certain hunter-gatherer groups, you know, that live in the more or less traditional way, in as much as you even can at this point, um, they didn't have a lot of entertainment options. So they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have phones, and so strangers could be a source of entertainment. Um, and I certainly found that too in just talking to as many people as I could for this book, um, that it was a really great form of like diversion and storytelling and entertainment and company and all these things. But we've sort of replaced that with a low calorie um, technology of phones where we're just occupied at all times, but we're not getting the benefits that you get from like in-person interaction with other people. Uh, but Joe, this is a really daunting thing. And I know you actually went for some lessons on this. How do you start a conversation with someone you don't know? I gather a lot of it is about listening. Yeah. So I, I actually took a class in London um, on this with a woman named Georgie Nightingale, which is like the greatest English it's the greatest name, name. Yes. outside of like Dickens, you know, yeah. it's a great, so, but she's, but Georgie's, she's brilliant. She's great. So she runs a, a communications company and she, I found out through a psychologist that, um, who studies this, that she was holding classes. So I flew out to London and I took the class um, and she had a lot of really fantastic tips about this. One for sure, and this is very difficult for people, is to listen, to train yourself to listen. Um, this is absolutely key to this whole endeavor that you don't do the thing, and I do this and everybody does this, don't do the thing where you're only listening for something that you personally are interested in so you can steer the conversation back into territory that's more comfortable for you, right? You want to let it go. You want to only ask open-ended questions like why, who, what, where, and just let people talk. And when you do that, you find that you're not pigeonholing them, right? You're not stopping, forcing a stop to the conversation so you can just talk about hockey. You can just talk about books. You can talk about whatever you want, but to let it go when you're talking to someone. Just let them talk and kind of ask questions and show interest. And that's where some really fascinating conversations will come from. Um, that's when you get the good stuff. I mean, you hear remarkable things from, from everybody when you do that. But you have to train yourself to listen. And it's vulnerable to listen. It feels vulnerable. Um, especially in days like this, where we're just accustomed to being in command of all our communications because so much of it is done via digital devices. To stand there in front of someone and just take it in and try not to judge and try not to steer and just like let them talk um, is hard to get used to. I had a hard time getting used to it. As a journalist, like I would certainly listen, but I also had to steer the conversation because I needed something, right? I needed to get information out of people. Um, but once you do it, you get used to it. It's, it's makes it so much easier because you don't have to do anything. You don't really have to, you don't have to appear super smart. You don't have to have anything really interesting to say. You can just ask questions and just follow your curiosity and let it go. Yeah. People love to talk about themselves. I always had something called the obit rule when it came to interactions with people, especially people I didn't know. And it's, if you walked away from that conversation, you could write their obituary and they couldn't write a line about you. I always knew I'd been in a strange conversation and you get a lot of that too. Like sometimes people will just, if you open the gates, they'll just talk and talk about and never ask you a question about yourself, which is an interesting, an interesting phenomenon about talking to strangers too. It's, it's most fun when it's a bit, when it starts a bit like a, like a, like a tennis match, a bit of a volley at first, and then you start to maybe hit a little bit harder, but it's, it, it's interesting what you open yourselves up for. But again, if, if your goal is to interact and to learn something about somebody, the possibilities are endless. The things you find out are, are just incredible. Yeah, they're really amazing. I met, I met a taxi driver who was a transgendered man who spent 10 years trying to get medical care for an orphan he met in Uganda. I, I mean, I met fascinating, fascinating people. Um, and it all came out of just kind of striking up a conversation.
you know, you mentioned earlier that people, people are nervous about this. People feel a lot of anxiety about talking to strangers. Researchers have found that too. People are really pessimistic about the prospect of talking to strangers. Um, but Gillian Sandstrom, who's actually a Canadian psychologist currently working in England, put together a fear inventory based on a lot of the research she did about talking to strangers. And she found that, yes, some anxiety could come from talking to a member of a different group, some sort of like fear that you might be different politically, uh, fear that this person might be a threat. But by and large, the most commonly confessed fear about talking to strangers is just a fear that people are going to be bad at it, that they're going to be rejected, that they're going to be boring. Um, and you just see that everywhere. People feel like they're out of practice. Um, and the other thing is they feel that they're violating a social norm, that there's a norm against talking to strangers. And there is, in a, to, you know, to a great degree in the United States, we spent so many years with the stranger danger propaganda, which by the way, has no statistical basis whatsoever. If you're gonna get murdered, it's gonna be like your uncle or your neighbor. It's not, it's not gonna be a stranger, like the vast majority of the time. Um, so people are worried about that. They're worried about breaking a social norm and they're worried about being bad at things. Um, when they are sent out to do it, and this is in, in studies, but I also talk to a lot of just people out in the world and, and they kind of, um, they share this experience too. They find that they're better at it than they think. And they should be because this is our wiring, right? We're a social species, we're a hyper-social species. Um, but the social norm part of it is, is interesting. So when you go on the tube in London, there is certainly a social norm against talking to strangers. Um, one of the tips that, that, um, that Georgie Nightingale gave me was something called pre-framing which is when there's a social norm against doing something and you do it, people are going to think that you don't understand the norm and they're, therefore they're going to think that you're chaotic and you're, you might be some kind of threat. Yeah. You're so a threat the way out to of get the bounce. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the threat out of the, you know, out of the, the, the technique out of the gate is to acknowledge that you're breaking the social norm. So Georgie will do something like on a subway train. We'll just go, look, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, but can I just, say like, I think you're, I love your shoes or whatever she wants to talk about. <laughs> but by acknowledging that it's like, it's a little audacious. Um, it's a little charming, but it shows that you know what you're doing, right? So it's, you're not in a situation where someone has cornered you on a plane and they will not stop talking to you, which we've all been in that situation. <laughs> um, it's just saying like, I know, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but in spite of that, I'm interested in you. Um, and of course you have to be careful about that. I mean, me as a, as a man, I need to be careful about doing that because, you know, women are pestered by creepy men all the time and I need to like reassure them that I'm not like that. But when you do that, when you like acknowledge that you're breaking a norm, it does tend to open the door a little bit to an interaction. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the things you described was, was eye contact, which is an odd one as well. I think that was another one of Georgie's, Georgie's tips was, was eye contact, which of course, nowadays you mentioned it. One of the things that, that allows us in to interact with a stranger is when you make eye contact with them, whether it be completely innocuous or not. Uh, whereas if you have your head down on your phone, clearly you're not making eye contact with a soul, right? So it makes it tougher to break the ice, but eye contact, that's a scary one. That's a scary one. Yeah, I had. A, I mean, Georgie made us sit in the classroom and just like hold eye contact with each other for sixty seconds at a time, and you feel that physically. It's it's really uncomfortable, but that's the only way that humans can really connect with each other. You know, if you look at the the conditions or the circumstances under which human the human body generates oxytocin, which is like the bonding molecule, right? It almost always involves holding eye contact, right? There is a connection there. That is like the portal for like a deeper relationship. So you're not necessarily, you know, you're not forming a deep relationship just having a chat on the on the train. Um, but you do need it if you're actually going to bond with someone. But we're so accustomed to not doing it um, that it can be very, very uncomfortable. And I, you know, I followed all of Georgie, Georgie's rules in New York City where I live. 
and I would make eye contact with people. Careful to like hold it for too long so it yeah. seemed threatening or creepy, but just like making eye contact and saying hello. And it's a really interesting thing to watch because people are not startled, but like surprised. Um, and generally, as long as they notice, as long as they actually look up, but they'll be like, oh, hi. You know, and there's something, there's some power in being like, I see you, like I'm recognizing a fellow human being here, um, which in a, in, a, in a time when people are on their phones all the time, you just don't get those connections as much. No one's ever looking each other in the eye. But when you do, it does create this little connection. And, and from that connection, sometimes if the circumstances are right, you can start a conversation. Clearly, practice makes perfect, too. I mean, you might be terrible at this off the bat. Say you're someone who thinks I should really be. I should really speak to strangers more often. Maybe not all the time, but now and then, especially when you're traveling on your own. It's funny when you travel on your own. When you're put in a situation where you have to be sociable or you're going to end up spending a lot of time by yourself, you tend to do it. Um, but practice makes perfect, right? You're not going to get this right. You're not going to get all the signals right the first time around. It's like anything. You need to you need to practice a bit. And I think a lot of us are kind of out of practice. Sure. There's a lot of research on that, too, where people do tend to underrate their performance in conversations. Um, this has been done um, a fair number of times where this, this finding has been um, established. But people will come away from a conversation with a stranger and they'll be like, oh, that person was really interesting. Like I, They were surprisingly interesting and surprisingly nice, and I like them. And then researchers will ask that person how they did. They'll be like, oh, I was fumbling around. I wasn't making any <laughs> sense. But then they would interview the person they talked to, and that person would be like, oh, that person was great. I really liked them, but I don't think I was really up to speed on this. So we do tend to, we tend to compare every conversation we have with a great conversation. And as a result, most of the conversations we have suffer in comparison. So you do have to be like a little gentle with yourself when you're starting out um, doing this sort of thing. Yeah, and not to and not to wax too poetic about this, but but given the times we're living in, you've also felt that there's a greater good here about about learning to speak to people instead of judging everyone right off the bat, speaking to people and getting those stories out of them. It demystifies a lot of what we think, for instance, are quote unquote others or people we don't people we disagree with or people we've labeled a certain way, regardless of your politics. That opening that door up to talking to strangers may make us more tolerant again because tolerance is bred by talk by hearing from people that you wouldn't normally speak to. Sure. Anything like polarization, um, racial prejudice, anything like that is a form of dehumanization. And dehumanization is just gross oversimplification of a population. So if you are racist against a group, you are not going to give that group a lot of credit on an individual basis, right? You're going to say like, well, they're all just walking in a line and like serving, like I know what their agendas are. I know what their motivations are. They're not like my side, which is very, very intelligent. And like, you know, we're all snowflakes on this side. Yeah. Um, that tends to happen when you do this. When you do interact with someone across one of those lines, it could be a racial line a gender line, a national line, a political line, when you do it well, when you go into it and you're actually open and you're actually curious, it makes it very, very, very difficult to maintain the illusion that people are simpler than they are. Um, it forces you to confront the complexity of humanity. And I think that's the road to wisdom. And I think that's also the road to fixing a lot of the more pressing social problems that a lot of Western nations face right now. And interestingly enough, because I had to ask you this, I know when you were young, I think we've all been there. We're embarrassed a little bit by when our parents do things that are outside the norm. And I gather in your case, it was often your parents sort of striking up conversations at the local diner with someone about what they were eating. For instance, all of a sudden they're fast friends. Now that you have kids and they're going to hit that age soon too, are you worried at all? You have to explain this to them about what, why dad strikes up conversations with strangers in odd places? I get questions about it from my daughter. So um, my daughter's seven. Um, right. and I just try to model it. You know, like you, again, we live in New York City. You do have to be pretty street smart when you live here. So I, I drum that into her for sure. But I do just try to show 
um, on a regular basis, what happens? Like, this is how you can be comfortable in your environment. Um, and a lot of the research shows that when people do talk to strangers, they feel less lonely, they feel more connected to their communities, the world feels less chaotic, they might even feel more favorable towards humans as a whole, because we, we do generalize from our experiences. And I want that for her. I want her to make the connections and make friends and have that sort of life, but also feel comfortable navigating an urban environment just by like shooting the bull with people that she meets along the way in a yeah. safe way. Again, she has to be street smart, but, but I think it's a really good way to live. Yeah, because I think there's a certain confidence that you have. If you have the confidence to talk to strangers, there's a certain confidence that you have when you walk through the world that kind of shines. And it kind of it kind of makes you I, I don't you know, it, it, it makes you stand out a bit and in a good way, in a good yeah. way. Yeah, no, it's a passport. I mean, there was a kid I met when I was taking the class in London who was very, very shy. And he said his inspiration for taking the class, despite deep, deep shyness, um, was he wanted to see the world and he couldn't see the world without learning how to talk to people. Joe? Thank you so much for your time on this. I much appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Great talking to you.